Good morning, everyone. Good to be together. And uh, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 16 in your Bibles with me as we get started here on uh, seeing what God has to say to us this morning through his word. Um, This is a a turning point. I just want to point that out. This really is a turning point, literally, for Jesus and his disciples because um, they have reached basically the, 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 the northernmost part of Jesus's uh, itinerant mobile ministry here. He's in the, the realm of the Gentiles still at this point in time, maybe 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, um, probably 150 miles, give or take, away from Jerusalem. But with what happens today in this passage, Jesus determines it's time. It's time for me to turn uh, toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, uh, with my disciples. And um, so there's a focus that will shift in Jesus's ministry uh, from this point forward. So we're going to be reading from verses 13 to 20 in just a moment. I want to start off with um, a, kind of a, a real-life story and account uh, as kind of an illustration of where we're going to be going today. It's that of a, a Christian uh, pastor and professor who gave a lecture at a a liberal university on the subject of the biblical ethic for sexuality um, and uh, afterwards opened it up for Q&A and there was a long line that was formed. Um, The Q&A lasted for a couple of hours. Um, There was definitely some hostility in some of the questions, as you can imagine, revolving around a subject like that being spoken on on a a, a secular college campus. Um, But there were some really good questions too. One of the questions in particular stood out to me, and um, it wasn't so much because of the question, but because of the answer that uh, the professor pastor gave, and it was just highly relevant to where we're going to be going today. So a girl uh, stepped up to the mic, and, and here's what she said. She said, I'm a bisexual. Quote from your talk, you say that you become like that which you worship. Today have shared that they are both gay and a Christian, so doesn't that mean that a part of God must be gay? the man answered this way. He said, here's what I was trying to say. Our worship doesn't determine who the true God is, but what we think God is, is what we become progressively like. So in other words, Muslims become more and more like what they think God to be. Polytheists become more and more like the realm that they think is the ultimate reality and so on and so forth. But I don't believe that their pursuit of that alters the ultimate way that things are. The girl responded once more and she said, well, what if a homosexual believes that that is the way that things are. He responded to her, well, if they're right, they're right, but them thinking that doesn't make it right. My belief system, for example, doesn't make God that way. God is that way, uh, is the way that he is, whether or not I was ever born. Truth is truth, regardless of what I might think about it. So my beliefs about God don't alter him. Someone else has other beliefs about God. If they're right, they're right but it would be true independent of their opinion. And he concludes this way. He says, our opinions don't shape God. I'm arguing that we ought to have our opinions shaped by the way that he reveals himself to be. One thing that I appreciated about how he responded is he didn't necessarily try to argue that specific issue with her in this moment. He didn't necessarily argue his particular view of God in response to that issue in that moment. But what he did was he removed both of them as the authority. And he emphasized that truth about God has to be defined by God, not what we think about God. We'll say this, nobody fully understands God, nobody in this room, not me. The key is, what is your starting point? 
Is it yourself or is it God? Are you letting God be God? Do you know him for who he's, who he has revealed himself to be? Or is the God that you worship a product perhaps of your own biases, experiences, preferences, and opinions that inform who you think he should be? As you'll see in a moment, this is very much tied to the lesson that Jesus is wanting to establish and teach his disciples here in Matthew 16. The implications of this lesson are huge, and they are that who we believe God to be will determine whether or not we are a part of his kingdom. So we better make sure that we know him for who he has revealed himself to be, not just who we think he is. Let's read together Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The big idea for today really is a summation of what I've already introduced. And that is that entrance into the kingdom comes through belief in who God has revealed himself to be. The, the inflection there is so important. This is, you know, on many Sundays, a big idea that we could say relates to what we're going to conclude. But hear the inflection. Entrance into the kingdom comes through belief in who God has revealed himself to be. Right? Not in who the world, the culture believes that he is or thinks that he is. Not in who other religions say that Jesus is. Not in who you or I say that Jesus is. But who God has revealed himself to be primarily through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. A roadmap for getting there today in terms of working through this passage and supporting that big idea is that we're going to examine that question of who is Jesus we're going to take a look at the source, the true source of Peter's true confession of faith here, and then we're going to take a look at the role of the church that Jesus has established as truth's gatekeeper, okay? Verses 13 to 15 um, capture this moment in Jesus's ministry and time and training the disciples where he asks what I don't think is hyperbolic for me to say is the most important question ever been asked in the history of mankind. Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is he starts off with asking the disciples, what do other people say about me? Who do others say that I am? All the answers that are given, interestingly, are prophets, but not just any prophet, particular prophets, prophets that stood kind of head and shoulders above the rest in Old Testament history, that stood for different things in people's minds, things that perhaps these people in Jesus's day and age were hoping that he was like. So you had John the Baptist. What we think of when we think of John the Baptist, if you've been with us in Matthew's gospel, vignettes and scenes that we've had of his life and ministry, he comes across very much as a passionate, zealous, intense, fiery guy. Um, 
He's the guy who basically you, you could see in his words to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day when he condemned their actions and their beliefs um, that he had an expectation that the Messiah, Jesus, would basically rain down fire imminently upon those who were disobedient, those who were sinners. Like he was a fire and brimstone type of a prophet. So there were some that were drawn to John the Baptist and perhaps hoped or projected upon Jesus this expectation that he would be like this. I think this represents the people who believe that truth is preeminent. All about the truth. Christians really need to be doing is opposing the tide of false teaching and calling out sin wherever they see it. People don't know God because they're not willing to stand up and just say what's true. For those who are hoping, this is who Jesus is. John the Baptist type. But then there's those who believed him to be Jeremiah. Jeremiah had a nickname. He was known as the what prophet? Weeping prophet. Why? Because he was brokenhearted over the sin of his people and brokenhearted when he preached repentance that they didn't turn their hearts back to God. They were missing out on relationship with him. He had a heart for the loss. He was a compassionate prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations, for goodness sake lamenting the lostness of his people are, are those who believe that what the world needs the most is mercy as christians what we should be about is holding our hat in our hands owning our own failures and then extending that same grace that we need to others after all it's by our love that the world shall know that we are his disciples then there's elijah i don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of elijah but certainly in the minds of the people of israel he was perhaps the most prolific prophet of miracles and works of power. This is the guy who prayed against the rain and it ceased to rain for three and a half years and then prayed for it to rain and it did. This is the guy who resurrected the widow's son. This is the guy who called down fire from heaven in his competition with the prophets of Baal to, to um, present them as false prophets and fire came down and burned up his sacrifice. This is the guy who placed his cloak in the Jordan River and the river uh, parted so that he could walk across. This is the guy who flew off to heaven in a whirlwind. He never even died. God just took him to heaven. His ministry was marked by incredible miracles, incredible power. It, I think he appealed to those who would say, you know what, nobody believes in truth anymore anyway. It's all relativism, logic and reason and intellect. They're all overrated. And those compassionate people, they're just a bunch of pushovers. What we really need, what the world really needs, are great works of power, manifestations of God that is going to break through their cold and hard and calloused hearts. For me, none of these are wrong in and of themselves. In fact, all of them are good, in a sense. All of them, though, are only a part of the equation. Because Jesus is the sum of all that is true and not just the parts. Um, we know Jesus from John 1.14 to be present and full of grace and truth. This is the value at Terra Nova. That, this is the scripture we would use to support the value at Terra Nova of what it means to be incarnational. Jesus came and entered into time and space. He made sense to people, entered their world in a meaningful way that people felt his presence, and then he was a perfect 100% representation of both grace and truth. On top of that, he was a mighty miracle worker, showcasing the power of God through doing more mighty works than anyone. He was all of the above, not just one of those things at the expense of the others. And, and the reason this worked is because 
walked in perfect union and communion with his heavenly Father. Executed these things with perfect wisdom because he was in perfect sync with his heavenly Father. Guys, I guarantee you that if you walk with Jesus long enough, closely enough, and with an open enough heart, there will come some point in time in your journey with him where you will be shocked by something that you are confronted with, something that doesn't fit your presuppositions about who he is, your expectations for him, or your preferences that you would have. Unless you are open to that, here's what's going to be prone to happen in your walk with Jesus. Unless you're open to that possibility of being shocked by something about him that rubs you perhaps the wrong way, you'll be prone to conform Jesus into the image of who you want him to be. And because we become like that which we worship, that's what you'll become more and more like. But that will be a lopsided representation of Jesus. That's Christian idolatry. We latch onto one thing that we love about Jesus at the expense of the sum of all that he is. And there comes a point in time where we cross a line where I'm not so sure we're really worshiping the Jesus of Scripture anymore. Jesus wanted this to be clear to his disciples. I'm not any one of these people. I'm all of it and so much more. So Jesus then turns to his disciples and he asks the same question of them. You say that I am. And they respond to him, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Not they, actually, but Peter. Whether Peter was speaking on their behalf or truly was the first one among them to come to this determination in this moment, I'm not so sure, but he is the one that speaks up and declares this proclamation about who he believes Jesus to be. He got some stuff right, for sure. This is a moment to be celebrated, Jesus does. Peter understands Jesus is the Messiah. He's more than just one of these prophets in a long line of prophets who've come as messengers of God. He actually stood apart in a dramatic way as the climactic figure in all of history through whom God would accomplish his purposes. Peter also understood this man has a unique relationship with the Father differently than any other human in history. He understood he was the Son of God. Now, it's fascinating, this is kind of a tip of the hat to where we're going to be next week, that Peter did apprehend some things here with his words. He spoke truth. He still didn't see the full picture, which is betrayed through his response to Jesus next week, something he doesn't like about who Jesus is at that moment. Because Peter, like many fellow Israelites in his day, held to the view that when the Messiah came, he would imminently restore them to their glory days and to their independence that they knew and enjoyed earlier on in their history. For Peter, that term Messiah conveyed more of glory and success than it did defeat and death. Understandably so. Here's the point. Nobody has the full picture. The important thing is, how are you stewarding, being a caretaker for the revelation that God has given to you of himself, that which he has revealed to you? I love here how Jesus doesn't crush, um, he doesn't crush Peter's shallow understanding of the meaning of Messiah here. Jesus knew what was in man's heart. He knew that his disciples had a long way to go, but he's not a wet blanket in this moment. He doesn't say, well, you got the words right, Peter, but I know that you have a superficial understanding of what that really means, so try again. Eh. He doesn't do that. I love that, and I love what that reveals about how God works with his people. Because Jesus is seen here commending 
the positive part of what Peter responded to about Jesus. In this little vignette, in this moment, and knowing what's coming next, next week with where Peter gets something wrong, we learn something about the process of discipleship. Our nucleus class uh, last week, we talked about something we call the discipleship spiral, which is where discipleship's really a continual journey where we come around and around again in a deeper way to truths about God. The key is not, do we know everything there is to know about God? The key is, are we truly open-hearted about what it is that God is wanting to reveal about himself to us, even where it conflicts with our own personal sensibilities? Jesus is the sum of all that is true, not just the parts that we are drawn to, that we find to be more palatable or easier to swallow. So our responsibility is to humbly submit ourselves to whatever God has revealed of himself to us. And Peter does this. He doesn't have it all together. He doesn't get the full picture of who Jesus is, but he's embraced that which God has revealed to him so far. The humbling part of this is that Jesus makes very clear we're not smart enough or perceptive enough or deep enough to figure this out on our own. Jesus commends Peter for his answer here. It's a very short commendation before he shifts the limelight to God as being the ultimate one to be credited with this moment of an insight of Peter's. Uh, it, it actually has more of the feel when you read it all together, Jesus' commendation here, of him congratulating Peter for having won the lottery more than it has the feel of congratulating him for you know, graduating with his PhD from an Ivy League university or something like that. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then he doesn't go on to say, because, man, you are so smart and deep and profound to have discovered this for yourself. Not many others have. Praise be upon you. No, that's not what he says. He says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My Father in heaven has. He's saying, Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own. God revealed this to you, and you're blessed because of it. Happy in the state that you are in, that you understand this thing that is true come across that term blessed before in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, for example, where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same word, same meaning. It could be translated congratulations, which has a a formal sense to it that feels a little awkward, but that's kind of the literal translation. It, it, It could be translated, happy are you because of this, but that has connotations of feeling good, which isn't necessarily what Jesus is saying. The sense here is of one who is in an enviable position. If other people just understood what that person has, what Peter had as a result of embracing God's revelation, they would envy his position. They would want it for themselves. They would desire to be in his shoes. That's what Jesus means by blessed here. Peter's case, he's blessed because God has graciously revealed truth to him. That truth that he's revealed is the key and the pathway to the good life, not necessarily an easy life, but the paradoxical kind of life Jesus will describe next week when he says, whoever loses his life for my sake will be the one who finds it. It's life in the kingdom, and life in the kingdom on this side of eternity is not always easy. It's fraught with difficulty, but it is always surpassed by the joy of being known and commended by God and secure in his love. It's an enviable position to be in, despite the hardships that come with it of being a disciple of Jesus. God wants to be found by us. He's not hiding. He's not playing hard to get. But the point here Jesus is making is that he alone is the source and initiator of all truth, all revelation. 
And when we get this backwards, what we do, wittingly or not, is we create a God in our own imagination who fits our own self-interests. We set up a stumbling block for ourselves or for others entering the kingdom. God is the source and initiator of all truth, so we look to him alone. Okay, this is what Jesus is impressing upon his disciples and us here. Based upon Peter's confession, he gets this thing right about Jesus. Now Jesus heaps upon him some incredible responsibility right, that he's going to task him with. So there's a lot here, and I'm going to do my best to briefly address it. I want to talk, speak firstly to <clears throat> what I understand Peter's role to have been in the first century church. And then I want to talk about how I believe that there's actually a principle here from what Jesus tasks Peter with that extends in principle to the church at large universally and even today here at Terranova, okay? Of course, for some of you, you will know that these verses have been the linchpin for this um, idea of papal, uh, papal succession uh, in the Catholic Church, the line of popes that started with Peter is their understanding. Also, this idea of the infallibility of the popes comes from this passage. So, what I want to just do for a moment is share why in our Protestant tradition, this isn't the conclusion we come to from this passage, okay? So, first of all, there's nothing in this passage of Scripture that's directly speaking to ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just like how we understand the church to function and operate structurally, the polity of the local church, how it's governed. That, that wasn't the intent of this passage. One of the reasons we know that is though Jesus uses the word for church, Ecclesia, uh, ecclesia here, or ecclesia, that we, we find later in the New Testament when the uh, apostles um, are talking about the New Testament church, more like a Terranova type church. In the Gospels, it's rarely used, and when it is, it's always meant in a general sense of the people of God assembling together for some reason. Um, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was present in Jesus' day, it was something very familiar to the Jewish people, Many of the times when they were talking about the assembling or gathering together of God's people in the Old Testament, they would use the word ecclesia. This is what Jesus meant. It was a general term for the gathering of the people of faith together, not a specific term or uh, with implications for how the structure of the church should be set up, okay? That's not what Jesus had in mind here. I will also say, to kind of balance out this discussion for a moment, us Protestants have probably taken it too far in a different direction when it comes to our interpretation of what Jesus is saying here to Peter, and perhaps have interpreted this passage in ways we don't need to in order to distance ourselves as much as possible from the ecclesiastical structure of the Catholic Church, okay? So, for example, one of the force fits in my understanding of this passage is looking at Jesus saying on this rock, not referring to Peter, whom he's just pointed out, but to Peter's confession of faith. That actually isn't the most natural reading of this text. And I think that there's been a, uh, a temptation to possibly read into it that that is what Jesus is referring to in order for there to be no mistaken that Peter isn't given more authority than he should have. The most natural reading of the text is that actually Jesus is talking about Peter here as being the foundation for the church. So I want to unpack for you why I think that is and why I actually think that's important. So there are many, just so you know, Protestant scholars who would agree with what I'm about. This isn't just me, okay? There are many Protestant scholars who would agree Peter is the rock. Peter is the foundation being referred to here. So a little bit of background, backdrop for how he got this name. 
Jesus had given Peter this name well before this passage. This wasn't the first time this name came onto the scene. I think it's interesting to know that this was not a common name in first century Palestine. Very rare, in fact, um, if at all. Um, it, it, um, it was more of a nickname that Jesus had given to Peter. Okay, so I, the equivalent I can think of is um, in the early 2000s when I worked at Camp of the Woods, a, a Christian camp up in the Adirondacks, they had a policy where you couldn't build campfires above your waist. I don't know if you knew that policy. But, um, you know, me being as tall as I am, we could make some pretty big campfires. So my nickname ended up becoming Big Fire. No parent is going to name their child Big Fire. It's a nickname. It's an affectionate one. This was an affectionate nickname that Jesus had given to Peter, while at the same time it was also purposeful. And Jesus knew there would come a day where this affectionate nickname would actually be unpacked for the great purpose that it actually had. And so he does that here. See, a rock is used as a firm foundation to build something that you want to last. And Peter, Jesus is saying, would be this foundation upon which Jesus would build his church. Now, if that rubs you at all the wrong way, let's just consider the evidence of the amount of attention that's given to Peter and his importance in the early stages of the church. First of all, in Matthew, Peter is by far named more than any of the other disciples. He's present in these scenes and, 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 and pointed out more than any of the other disciples. He's usually the first one to speak. He's usually leading them in some capacity. When you get to the book of Acts, he's the one leading the disciples early on in Jerusalem. He's the one who introduces the gospel to the Samaritans and then to the Gentiles at large early on in the book of Acts. He has a significant formative role in the establishment of the church early on. I think it's also important and interesting to note that he, his role fades with time. Um, by the time you get to Acts chapter 12, he's no longer the leader in Jerusalem. He had just gotten out of prison. The local leadership wanted his head. He was out of there. And James takes over as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. By the time you get to Acts chapter 13 and on, the apostle Paul really comes onto the scene and is the predominant figure establishing the early church. It's almost a little bit of a John the Baptist, I must decrease so that the rest of God's church may increase moment. I, I, here's my point, and I'm going to make my point through uh, a quote from Craig Blomberg, who's a commentator on Book of Matthew. He says this. He said, Peter's primacy here is more chronological in the unfolding events of early Christianity than it is hierarchical, okay? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with believing that Peter uh, was the foundation or the rock Jesus was referring to here. Here's a couple of reasons why. Number one, Peter understood the distinction between him and Jesus very clearly in terms of importance in the, in the church. Because when, he, when you get to 1 Peter chapter 2, his le, one of his letters he wrote, he talks about these living stones of which he is a part of who, who make this big spiritual structure that's all founded upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He makes the distinction of significance between himself and that of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate foundation. Peter knew that. The second thing that I would say, if, if that's a critique that some would have, it's just too much authority, you can't place that kind of <clears throat> authority or importance on any one figure. Well, I actually think it's a beautiful testament to the grace of God, because here's Peter who, goodness, if you read objectively the Gospels, is not a perfect human being. He is far from it. In fact, next week we'll see, uh, and he very much is fallible, and even as far into the book of Acts when he is an established leader in the church, he makes some big mistakes. I think, here's what this is saying. God chooses a flawed individual who nonetheless had passion 
and leadership and a love for Jesus. And he uses him significantly to found his church. Is, is that a problem? No, I don't think so. I actually think it's okay. I actually think it gives us hope. It gives me hope because what it says is that God can give great responsibility and do great things through flawed people. Don't be shy about embracing the way that God, by his grace, uses and sustains people like Peter to build his church. Incredible. God could have done it all on his own, but he chooses to use people like Peter and even you and I. Said, since I don't believe that this passage is ultimately a basis for the ecclesiology of the Catholic Church or papal succession, it means then that the authority that God is giving to Peter here, the principle that by extension translates to the church today around the world. So I want to take a look at what Jesus says here specifically with you in terms of this responsibility that he's giving to Peter. In verse 19, just to read it once more, he says this. He says, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, I'm just going to tell you up front what I think those things mean, the keys to the kingdom and binding and loosing. I believe the keys here, from my understanding of Scripture, means that Jesus is, the keys are Peter and the disciples' proclamation of the gospel. Keys to the kingdom, proclamation of the gospel. I believe the authority to bind and loose is the authority that Jesus is granting to Peter to be able to evaluate the confessions of faith on the part of those coming into the ecclesia, the assembly. Make sure that they've got it right. There's not a diluted gospel that people are getting wrong and being unwittingly ushered down a, a pathway toward hell and not towards the kingdom of heaven. So that's what I think that the keys and the authority to bind and loose mean. Let's unpack those a little bit here. The keys, not to put it too obviously, but keys are used to open and shut things, to unlock, to open and close things, right? This was likely an illusion that Jesus was making to the scribes of their day, these religious leaders in Israel, um, <clears throat> who were told, who were said to have these keys as a symbol of their function in teaching Israel. For a negative example of this, if you look at Matthew chapter 23, Jesus actually condemns the religious leaders, particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, and he alludes to this idea of how their teaching role actually functions as keys that not only could open a door, but can also lock it, shut it, in the face of those who otherwise would enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. You see, by missing points of the law, the truth that ultimately culminates in and points to Jesus Christ, religious leaders of his day were slamming the door to the kingdom on God's people. They weren't using the keys to the kingdom. They had the wrong set. For a positive example of this, or multiple, we again look to Peter in the book of Acts, where through the proclamation of the gospel, we see uh, a mass revival amongst his fellow Jews at Pentecost in Acts 2. We see the Samaritans begin to come to faith through the proclamation of the gospel in Acts chapter 8. We see the Gentiles at large begin to be open to the gospel through its proclamation in Acts chapter 10. When you get to Acts chapter 14, we see Paul preaching the gospel to the Gentiles where it's said verbatim uh, that through that proclamation of the word, he was opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is what I believe Jesus meant by the keys to the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, 
Okay, proclaiming the truth of the gospel are the keys to the kingdom of heaven because entrance into the kingdom comes through belief in who God has revealed himself to be. Reminds me of Paul's words in Romans 14 when he says, how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching? He's to the kingdom. That in one sense, all of you who are followers of Jesus, who've received the revelation of Jesus Christ now have those keys to open that door for the blind and the lost. But then what about the binding and loosing? This is um, also familiar language to the Jews, even if less so to us, right? So the rabbis in their day often spoke of binding and loosing by which they meant either forbidding or permitting something based upon their understanding of the law. See, the rabbis and religious leaders of Jesus' day in Israel had the authority to make those kinds of de- determinations. So Jesus here, in turn, he's playing off that understanding of how the structure worked in Israel And he is giving authority to Peter, in turn, to evaluate the confession of those who are entering the community of faith. Do people's profession of faith accord with that which God has revealed of himself? In this sense, Jesus is giving the church the authority to be the gatekeepers of truth. That's what he's establishing here. I don't know how that jibes with you. That certainly would not be a popular notion at large in our world and culture today. That's what Jesus is saying here, starting with Peter and by extension, the church universal. So here's where I want to end things today, just to tie up some loose ends. There's one um, note on the original language here of binding and loosing that I think is worth bringing up to tie together some threads from other parts of this passage. Then I want to just acknowledge two possible critiques that I would anticipate the culture at large, maybe even some within the church, having of the idea that the church could be the gatekeepers of truth. Again, not a popular notion, I'm sure. So first, the comment on the original language. There might be some confusion here. It may sound like at first there was a heavy emphasis on Jesus's part of God being the ultimate source of revelation, and then all of a sudden, he's just allowed the truth to be the, or excuse me, the church to be the arbiter of truth. Like a significant shift with the emphasis that Jesus had just placed prior on God being the source of Peter's insight. So here's what you, I want you to see and understand. Verbs here, these verbs of bound and loosed in heaven are both future passive perfect verbs. Don't worry about that. If you want to look it up later, you can, just so you know I'm not making this up. Future passive perfect verbs. Here's what that means. And it's right in the footnotes of your Bible too. You've got a little superscript that you can go down in the bottom and you'll see Here's the literal translation of this Greek word. Instead of Jesus saying here, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, referring to the authority given to evaluate these claims of faith, the literal translation of these future passive perfect verbs should be, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you uh, loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. See, these are determinations that have already been made in heaven. Church, as comprised of those who've received the revelation, are charged to steward that revelation. We're kind of catching up, if you will, with what's already been determined and understood in heaven, and we do so by applying that revelation in real time in our community of faith as those who've been charged to evaluate the truth based upon the revelation of who God has said that he is. It's a real authority God has given the church, but it's an authority of stewardship and not an ultimate authority 
So this actually doesn't conflict, I hope you see this, with the previous point that God is the source and initiator of all truth before we look to him alone. Still do that. As those who've been given the keys to the kingdom and those who've been given the authority to bind and to loose when it comes to evaluating professions of faith. Okay? And then a couple of critiques that I could anticipate coming, I just want to acknowledge. Number one, the church shouldn't have authority because of the vast number of differences in how they interpret the Bible. That throughout history, the church hasn't been able to agree on anything <clears throat> um, is one of the critiques that will be lobbed the way of the church. This is a bit of a straw man argument. By that, I just mean when you take someone else's um, point that you disagree with, you focus on a particular aspect of it that's maybe superfluous to the overall argument, and then you tear their whole argument down. Here's why. Sure, there are plenty of secondary and third-level disagreements that the church has never been able to fully agree on, things like how we understand baptism, how we understand the end times, and so on and so forth. But when it comes to the core tenets, the core beliefs of what make a Christian a Christian, what make the church the church, there's been remarkable consensus for 2,000 years on what that means, starting with Peter's own proclamation of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Disagreement over secondary issues become at best an unfortunate distraction, at worst a convenient excuse to deny the authority that's given to the church. Okay, that's, that's the first anticipated critique that I could see coming. The second would be just the mere mention of authority is so unpopular because of its um, mistaken with authoritarianism, which is something that's bad and oppressive. Um, people don't like being told what they should and shouldn't do, where they're wrong, where they're right. But if there's no objectivity, and if there's no authority we can look to, to say what that objective truth actually is, it leads to subjectivity on everything, and there being no truth at all. And here's the problem with that. If there really is a God, if there really is sin to be overcome, if there really is a kingdom that requires a certain reality that we believe in in order to enter into it, wouldn't you take comfort in knowing that God has set up a way for his truth to be proclaimed? And then for those confessions of faith to be evaluated, especially when the cost of getting it wrong is eternal separation from him forever. Meant to be a good thing. Your answer to that is no, I still don't like it. Here's just an analogy. It would be like if you lived in a land with a severe famine, one that you're not going to survive. And a hundred miles away, there's an airport that has airplanes that are able to take you to a place that's lush and green and flourishing and thriving where you will survive. Nobody told you about it. Or you got some misinformation and thought you were on your way, but you were going the opposite direction and nobody ever corrected you. You ultimately end up dying in that barren land because of either misinformation or no information at all. If you don't want there to be objective reality, objective truth, if you don't want people stepping into your lives to humbly correct you where they discern that you're in error, that's what you're asking for at the end of the day. Authority God has given to the church to proclaim the truth about Jesus is not authoritarianism. It isn't oppressive. It isn't a heavy-handed demand for conformity at the expense of one's personal freedom. It's actually meant to be the complete opposite. Meant to lead people instead to their greatest freedom in life. Life in the kingdom. We're going to transition and celebrate communion here in a moment. And when we do, I want you to meditate on Peter's own words. His confession of faith here is really at the heart of what it is that we remember and celebrate with communion. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God. Even as Peter didn't fully understand all that he meant by that in that moment, 
but that he embraced nonetheless what God had revealed. We don't understand God perfectly. He's infinite. Much will remain mystery to us on this side of eternity. But here's what we do know. Jesus was not just one prophet in a long line that came with a message from God. He was and is the Messiah, the Son of God, and his message was as much in what he did for us as it was in what he said to us. What he did for us was he humbled himself as God, not counting equality with God a thing to be used for his own selfish interests. Instead, he took responsibility for our sins, dying in our place on the cross, that whoever confesses him as Jesus the Christ shall be granted entrance into his eternal kingdom. Pray with me. Father, I confess that in ways I'm probably conscious of, but more likely not, how frequent I try to be the arbiter of truth. Allow what's comfortable for me or my own persuasions and experiences to determine who you are and what's true about you. Lord, what I want for myself and for all that are here today is for us to really enter and walk with you in the kingdom life that you have provided through us, for us through your son, Jesus. Would you graciously, by the power of your spirit, grant us the faith to believe those things that are maybe the hardest for us, the, the crossroads we find ourselves at right now, things that we would be inclined to reject, thinking that we know better, and open our hearts and minds to receive these things as from you, trusting that you know best. Pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.